1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles right back there where Adam is in the blue shirt. So he will be happy to get you a Bible. But we always invite you to bring your own Bible or to, um, you know, check out what check out what we say, follow along, and, and take some notes in that. So um, question for you this morning. You ever hear someone tell you it'll be fine, you know, right before they do something dumb? <laughs> you know, oh, it'll be fine. I think that is probably the last words of many, many Men in particular, it'll be fine, you know. Um, I was sitting at Turkey Run's pool a few years ago. And um, when I was a kid, I used to get in trouble for this all the time. There's one rule that boys hate at the pool. What is that rule? What? Don't run. Yeah, anybody here ever been in trouble by a lifeguard for running? You know when a lifeguard says don't run? Yeah, good. Those are the troublemakers in the congregation. Um Man, when I was a kid, I used to live at the pool because uh, my parents figured free babysitting. And um, don't run, don't. I would get so many whistles, and I would sit by the lifeguard so often that they knew me by name. And I just had the hardest time with the rule, don't run. I'm like, I'll be fine. I can run. You know, I'm a, I'm a skilled runner. And I study how now that I'm older, now I understand why that rule is in place. Why? Because I've slipped a few times. You know, it really hurts when you're running on the pool deck and you slip and crack your head on the concrete. It's not very therapeutic. And uh, anyhow, so I'm watching this kid, and he's just, this little boy's just running. All, and the lifeguard, don't run, honey, don't run, honey, don't run, honey. And I'm just sitting in a pool like this. He's going to get busted. And uh, sure enough, finally they blew the whistle, and he had to sit. And he's like, and he walks over, and he just has this, this, sour look on his face of, man, you're, you're ruining my life, man. And uh, so he had to sit for his five minutes, and guess what happened to him like three minutes after he was released from his prison sentence? He ran. Do you know why? He couldn't stop running. It's in his DNA, you know. But the phrase, it will be fine. Everybody, you know, a lot of people think, I'm an exception to the rule. And they forget that sometimes things are in place for a reason, you know. Um, So that's kind of what's going on here in today's passage. There was something that God put in place, and they're like, eh, not a big deal. They are missing the gravity, the weight of what is happening before them. Now, if you tell a little kid, this is high gravity, this running, he's not going to understand that. He's just got to figure out the hard way, perhaps, right? And that's what happened to the people in Nazareth as well. So Mark 6, verse 1 through six. I'll go ahead and read the passage, and then we'll dig into it. Jesus went away from there, uh, went away from Capernaum, which was his uh, place he liked to hang out. That was in the Galilee. He went away from Capernaum from there and came to his hometown of Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. About a 22-mile, 20-mile hike uh, west. So good hike. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Big change here in verse 3. 
If you want to get a deeper look into the story, Luke 4 um, also talks about this situation in much more detail, but we're going to stick in Mark for this morning. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So in verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. It is said that Jesus, um, according to the prophets, is to be from Nazareth. And if you study the scriptures, there is no such prophecy that says he's supposed to be from Nazareth specifically. Now in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it talks about the Messiah being from the branch or the, the Hebrew word is the Naz of Jesse, and that that branch shall bear fruit. So I guess that's what the prophecy is, but there's not really a clear one, at least in scriptures. But my guess is that this is what um, the author is referring to, is Isaiah 11, verse 1, that he is a Naz. Uh, this Naz, this branch will come up uh, from Jesse, a root, and will bear a lot of fruit. And... Um, I think what we'll get from this message this morning is that God loves to use the insignificant. God uses the significant, yes, but God loves to use the insignificant sometimes because the town of Nazareth was an insignificant place. There is an archaeologist from Britain, she's Israeli, and she said this was a one-camel town. Okay. A hamlet in Jesus' day, it was a, she says this, it was just a little hamlet, and the idea that such a leader as Jesus came out of Nazareth was surprising. It was something worth noting. Why would someone so great come out of Nazareth? Can anything, you've heard this in the Bible, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They were known, to, they had these level terraces, they had these People liked to garden, and these, these stepped terraces. And they were known for olive oil, and they were known for having a large wine press there. And they're also known today, uh, they did subterranean storage. They would actually store their stuff underground. It was like a refrigeration system. And then, if you go there today, after Jesus' day, they even went lower and lower than that, <laughs> uh, where they were hiding in times of war. Um, because they weren't big, they couldn't defend themselves very easily. Uh, so when the Romans attacked, they hid themselves underground. I digress. Uh, they, they were not known for anything. They were kind of one of those cities that is off the main road. If there was electricity, they might have a blinking light, Lauren, that you were talking about earlier. They didn't have one stop sign. They didn't have one. They did have a stop sign. Um, it, was, it was a village smaller than New Market back in Jesus' day. In fact, looking at numbers of how many likely lived there, we don't know for sure, probably about the eighth 
of the size of Newmarket, uh, probably, speaking of Lorne, as big as the Perkheisers and, and the Brushes Road, Vine Street. There was just a small group of homes in this area of Nazareth. Can anything significant come out of such a dinky little place like Nazareth? Why would the Lord choose, got me thinking, why would he choose that tiny place? I think he is trying to tell us. He will use the small things sometimes and do something awesome with it. Have you ever watched The Muppet Show? Any Muppet Show fans in here? I like Sam the Eagle I love. There's like five Muppet Show fans in here? Man, oh man. You guys, what, are you guys reading books or something? Hey, Jeff, yes. Frog, All right, do your impersonation. <laughs> there we go. All right, The Muppet Show. My favorite guys, and J.D. talked about this uh, earlier, these guys. Anybody know their names? J.D., you can't say anything. Of course you know, Lauren. Do you know they're a big deal in Germany? The Statler and Waldorf. I'm like, when J.D. did it in the sermon, I'm like, how does he know their names, you know? And I, <laughs> I just knew this. I, I typed grumpy old guys in the balcony of the Muppet Show. That's how I typed it out the figure of a... But um, these guys were some of my favorites. They were like the pre-Cisco and Ebert. You know, they would sit in the box seats, if you don't know who they are, and they kind of remind me, I'm going to leave a picture of them up here during the sermon, uh, they kind of remind me of the people in Nazareth in the day. You know, at first, if you're looking at this passage, they're like, oh, oh, wow, he's amazing, he's really good. And they're like, wait a minute, is it okay? And the priests are like, ah, they get mad at him. And in the Luke passage, uh, they try to throw him off a cliff. That's how mad, now these guys weren't as brutal, but they're pretty brutal. You know, and so these guys remind me of how the Nazarene people treated Jesus. But it's gonna, I'm going to leave it up here because my fear when I was doing devotions is I think this is how we treat Jesus as well sometimes, kind of like these guys. And, and we'll get into that later. So just remember these guys, and I'll leave that up there for you. I'm a visual learner, so I need word pictures to help me. Um, so verse 2, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Why was he allowed to teach in the synagogue? They don't let anybody come and teach in a synagogue. We would not let anybody come up here and preach a sermon. When we have someone in our mind of, oh, I wonder if, you know, so-and-so mentioned like to speak the elders, the shepherd team talks about, eh, this person, eh, we don't want, you know, or, yeah, that person would be awesome. We're very particular and protective of who we share the pulpit with it's a very and that, that's why I'm surprised JD you ever let me come up but but um and McVeigh I'm surprised you have McVeigh up here but um in this teaching in the synagogue he wasn't just reading scripture many people did that he wasn't just sharing a prayer request he was teaching he was admonishing he was instructing after the scripture was read see in a synagogue service and um Later on, I'll show you a picture of what the synagogue would have looked like back in the day. In a synagogue service, the order is to read a section of scripture and then have someone briefly share some thoughts on it. Jesus did this in many different synagogues. And you can see the pattern if you read the Luke 4 passage. He reads from Psalm 
like refreshing rain upon him. He read the scripture and he said, these are being fulfilled in your presence today. And everybody was excited. Wow, he's such a good speaker. They loved They'll like a good speaker, but when you challenge someone, even in a loving, kind way, privately or personally, you build up enemies really quick. Um, you know, and, and, and my fear is this. In my heart, I like to hear nice sermons, personally. I don't like to be confronted by other Christians a whole lot. I bristle. I get defensive. And I kind of don't want to hang around with them because I don't want someone cramping my style. You know, I, don't want some, I want someone to like me. I don't want someone to be pointing things out to me, right? Can you relate with that? So as soon as Jesus started confronting them with not falsehood, not beating them, but sharing truth with them, they wanted nothing more to do with him. Jesus came in here and he preached and he pointed out some things that we need to work on would we want him back? I don't know if we would. Maybe we would. Maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. That's for you to figure out in your own heart what you would do with him if he started preaching here. So, so they liked him until he confronted them. And then the verse goes on. And many who heard him were astonished. This word astonished means they were struck out or they were besides themselves. Or it could mean they were amazed. Or it could mean they were shocked. Saying... Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? There's other passages where people, when they hear him, say, man, this guy has speaks with authority, unlike our teachers do. They were, there was something special about him when he spoke. They liked him until he started meddling, quite honestly. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Notice this in this passage. They even knew of... And they saw his mighty works. He spoke well. He did miracles to back up what he was saying. You think if we were around someone like that, we would want to know. We would want to hear what he had to say to us. Question. How would you have responded if Jesus did all these things before your ears and before your eyes? If you saw his miracles, if you heard his words, how would you have responded? Well, of course, in public, you would say, I love it. I wouldn't be like those knucklehead Nazarenes. You know, I would have, I would have loved what he did. He could bust me all. But would you? That's the challenge. They love what Jesus was saying and doing, and everyone likes blessings. Everyone likes uplifting words. Why do you think some prosperity preachers have such huge congregations? When you're hearing good stuff all the time, you want to hear good stuff. You have a rough week. You want to hear someone to encourage you, right? Last thing you want is to have a rough week, then come to a church and then be challenged. I mean, that makes seven days of roughness. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? People like positive things. They like being uplifted. But then something happened that triggered their hearts. 
You think they would have wanted to hang on every word. But at some point, there was that switch where instead of hanging on to the wonderful things he did, they turned him off and they wanted nothing to do with him. There's a quote from a, a pretty famous movie. You'll probably know what it is. It says this, but the hearts of men are easily corrupted. What movie is that? Go ahead, Lauren. Lauren, we should do trivia together. <laughs> the hearts of men are so easily corrupted. They're so fickle. They said, and you could almost feel their hearts harden in this passage. They said this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? You could feel the unbelief harden their previously open hearts. You could see the suspicion of what good can come out of our... He's too familiar with them. They know him. They saw him when he was a kid. Now, if you saw J.D. when he was a kid, you may say the same thing. Or if you saw me when I was a kid, Cor my friends, you know, when I talk to them, are like, Corhorn, you haven't changed a bit. I'm like, well, I hope I've changed. I'm thinking in my head. And, um, you know, you see the sin of a mere man. But here's the God-man. They didn't see him sin. They didn't see him stumble. But they still stumbled upon him. The verse says, and they took offense at him. The Greek word there is scandalon. I like that word. They became, means that they became offended. They became trapped. They became ensnared by their own thinking. When confronted by the Lord, the one that they were looking for, their thinking became a stumbling block to them. They did what's called a yeah but. Question is, do we do this to the Lord? And let me give you some examples of, of what I've heard from my own heart, my own mind, and, and from other people as well. Lord, I would do what you say, but... Dot, dot, dot. Or Lord, I would serve you, but I have this condition. I'm on disability and can't serve you. Lord, I would, but you know how busy I am. Can't do it. I'm sure you'll understand, Lord. Lord, I know I should read your word daily, but I just don't like to read. Lord, I know I should be discipling someone, but I'm so insecure. I don't got it together. The Lord would probably say to you, no kidding, Sherlock. <laughs> Who does? Lord, I would quit this sin, but LOL, I just, I just like it. Hey, we all have our vices. Or Lord, I would use my gifts, but I'm just too shy. I'm an introvert. Lord, obeying you is too culturally odd. Lord, I would follow you, but I really like my lifestyle. I am trying to achieve heaven on earth. I'm sure you understand. Lord, I would follow you, but I want to keep my house. It's been in the family for three generations now. I'm sure you get it. Or Lord, you're anti-gay, and I just can't sign on to that. I'm out. Or Lord, I would, but you fill in the blank of what your stumbling block would be. They took offense at him trapped in their own thinking. So what is this problem they had? Some would say that familiarity breeds contempt, right? They were too used to him. 
I think we can become this way if we are around Jesus a long time. We may be tempted to forget who he is. We may forget the gravity of this God in flesh that we are interacting with. We may become too familiar with his precious and powerful word. That's a fear of mine. I've been around Christianity and Christ in the Bible for years, and I have to pray before I start, Lord, help me to understand the beautiful things in your word. I have a little fear of becoming too familiar where the Bible becomes a yawner to me. Some say the people of Nazareth had an idealistic picture of who the Messiah should be, and he didn't fit what they pictured. Kind of like us when what God teaches goes against what we think or how we would prefer to live. Like forgetting that God hates sin, or we make a caricature of God where we think he, is, he isn't really who he says he was. We make this caricature that God is just love, which is very common today. God is, and they focus on God as love, but they forget that God is also holy. And I would suggest to you that his love comes out of his holiness. That if you were to get to the core of God, it would be God is holy. And he loves because he is holy. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I think it's a mighty work. I mean, imagine if, if he came here, he's like, you know, so-and-so has cancer, boom, healed, or so-and-so tore their bicep, boom, it's back to normal again. That would be awesome. That would be a mighty work. He can only do a few things. Why? Because of their hard hearts, because of their unbelief. You know, we, we look at this story and we think, oh, man, that's true. You still think of him as a kid, maybe, or they think of him as a kid. It is hard to respect those who you knew back in the day that they could share anything of any depth. My fear in this passage is that I can relate more with the Nazarites than I think. When I first read this, I thought, bunch of dummies. But then thinking about my own heart, I'm like, Ugh. it is easy con to condemn them, but it is difficult to really consider if you are as guilty as them. Verse 6, Jesus marvels. He marveled, which means he was amazed or he wondered because of their unbelief. And he went about among their villages teaching. What a sad story. Jesus wondered. He was amazed. He marveled. If he looked at us, would he marvel? And would that marvel be out of, man, that person is walking with me? Or would that marvel be, I can't believe I have done so much before their eyes and they still can't see. I've done so much that they've heard. They've sat in church a thousand, 52 times a year and they still refuse to trust me. Would he be amazed at your growth or would he be amazed at your stubbornness? Their issue was unbelief. May we be found trusting him. Our precious Jesus, who died on the cross, God in the flesh, may we trust him more and more. 
May he find us faithful, faithfully becoming more like him, faithfully helping others become more like him as well. I just can't help but to think if he was among us today, would we hate him as well as they did? Or would we accept him? Think about that a little bit. I want to encourage you with a uh, poem. And I was going to have the worship team play it. And then I started hearing how they sang it. Not the worship team, but this group. And I don't think anybody could hit the notes that these guys hit. You know, can you, Lauren? Of course you can. <laughs> um, this is a song. It's a throwback to Petra. Any Petra fans out here? No, you would have done this thing. Petra. Um, <laughs> You know, this is a song called Don't Let Your Heart Be Hardened. And I want to read the lyrics of this song to you. And uh, as I read them, feel free to shut your eyes and just think of the words as if, as if the lead singer of Petra was trying to encourage your heart personally. Let me read them to you. It says this. Don't let your heart be hardened. Don't let your love grow cold. May it always stay so childlike. May it never grow too old. Don't let your heart be hardened. May you always know the cure. Keep it broken before Jesus. Keep it thankful, meek, and pure. May it always feel compassion. May it, all, may it beat as one with God's. May it never be contrary. May it never be at odds. May it always be forgiving. May it never know conceit. May it always be encouraged. May it never know defeat. May your heart be always open, never satisfied with right. May your heart be filled with courage and strengthened with all might. Let his love rain down upon you, breaking up your fallow ground. Let it loosen all the bindings till only tenderness is found. What will you do to keep from getting too familiar or minimizing our great Savior Jesus or what he teaches? A couple thoughts. Number one, I'm going to go Jesus style here in metal. Many of you have been from churches where you've fought and split and you don't like each other in here. You need to deal with that. There are some of you who won't talk to each other in here because of the pain that you've caused one another. Go deal with that or don't take communion. It's very important that you do that. You've got to have that oneness and you've got to let those bitter edges fall off and learn to love one another. Now a couple of general suggestions. Number one, choose to trust him and then allow him to help you. Number two, Choose to bend your knees to his ways and his will and his purposes. Number three, choose to lift Jesus up as your king and follow his word passionately. Number four, choose passion over familiar apathy. This county, and I was talking with the pastor yesterday, there is this sleepiness towards being passionate for the Lord. This sleepiness, this motto of everything's okay, we're good. Number five, come to a Bible study, a small group, praise service, ready to grow and learn. Unless, of course, you have reached mature manhood 
and the fullness of the measure of Christ, as Ephesians 4 says. If you haven't, come to learn. Number six, obey him by shaping your life after his character and his behavior, even if it means sacrificing your dreams and idealistic pursuits. Number seven, allow other mature believers to evaluate how you are doing and let them speak into your life. That's a tough one. Even if it's uncomfortable or, un or challenging to you. Number eight, we aren't home yet. Jesus has a work to do both in and through you yet. Will you respect and respond to that? Let's pray together.